Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Man, come on, aren't you glad you came to worship today? How about that group, huh? This is incredible. So, you know, I'll, I'll make no secret of, of what we're up to, and you can, you can help us understand, but, uh, you know, we're looking for the Columbia sound. Every church should have a sort of a unique identity and a sound. And for, for me, at least, when we get all these musicians up here together that have been from different uh, backgrounds in the life of our church, the orchestra with the praise team, etc., something magic happens, and that was true in both services today. This is what we did. And you can't think of it right now, but when we get, and it, it is going to happen, I'm told, when we get to that new sanctuary uh, back there, that's an enormous stage, and a lot of sound has to fill that room. And I would get pretty excited if I worshiped like that pretty often, would you? I would, uh, I would be energized by that. So um, let's just thank our musicians. They do a great job. That's hard work to produce something like that. So thanks to Butch and all of his team for the great job that they do. That was just fantastic. Now, <clears throat> two weeks. I'm starting to think after today it should have been a longer series, but for this one it's just going to be two weeks. Two weeks that I want to talk to students and the rest of you can overhear. Now, we're all students. We never really get out of learning. If you start learning, you start dying. So uh, it's, it's good for all of us to sort of review some of these things, but I'm particularly talking to students and a lot of them are in this service today. I think they'll be in the 9.30 next week, and they're spread all over the room. So if you're a student in the room right now, stand up where you are. I want to see where you are. And you don't, in the balcony, stand up. I see you guys are not, they're in the very back. The biggest group of students are in the very back of the back of the balcony. They are the cloud of witnesses today. And uh, you guys can't hide from me up there. I see you. I see you up there. I know where you are. I'm talking to you. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to talk to you today. What I want to ask all of you is, can you pass the test? It's not just a proverbial question. I mean, there will be real tests and real opportunities. Can you pass the test? Now, what I'm going to get to is asking this question. Who are we? Who are you apart from the places, the parents, and the people who've nurtured you. Now, you could be a long way off. Maybe you join the military and you go to far-flung places all over the world, or you're, you're in some foreign land, or, or maybe you're off to college somewhere, or, or maybe you're just a little way off, like, you know, you're, you're a couple of streets away, or you're a few miles away, or you're, you're somewhere, though, where nobody who usually has watched you is watching you. The question is, then, do you know who you are? Now, I will tell you, my dream as a parent and a pastor is that the kids that come out of my home and my church would know who they are. They know their real ID and that they know how to hold on to that real ID in the culture they're going to be called to serve. So this sermon series, this little mini-series is sort of targeted at that and we're going to turn to a couple of familiar places uh, to see this story. Now I said you're going to be asked to pass some actual tests, and, and you will. Now you've had tests. All of you have te- you've got standardized testing now. You've got tests every day. You've got pop quizzes. You've got all sorts of things. I never worried much about tests growing up. And I, I will be honest with you and tell you that the schools I went to, my elementary school, middle school, high school, were simply not as challenging as the schools you've been to. I know because I watched my kids go through them. 
Uh, but, but even at that, some of you haven't had to work all that hard, and some of you have not chosen to work all that hard to this point, just to be honest. And, and I, I didn't either. So, so in elementary school, middle school, high school, I found it pretty easy. I, I mean, uh, uh, you know, grades were not that important to me. I mean, I made okay grades. I knew they would get me where I needed to go. I, 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 I thought school wasn't that challenging, not that kind of bored me, to be honest with you. I was really socially engaged, doing other things, playing sports, doing other things. And it wasn't that big a deal. And then I got to college at the University of Richmond, and I discovered I was just one of a lot of people who were bright. I, I mean, I didn't think I was brilliant, but, you know, I could hold my own. But, but when I looked around, I saw a lot of people who were pretty well prepared and who kind of knew how to study. A lot of them knew how to study a lot better than I did. Debbie, my wife, for example, she came out of high school knowing how to study and focus a whole lot better than I did. I, I just didn't really know much about preparation. And frankly, let me tell you, if you're going to college, let me tell you, you can fall into a little trap. I, I don't know that everyone does, but I did. And the trap looks something like this. I went to one class, and the professor, this is what the professor said. They said, listen, here's the deal. I'm here for you. I'm here to teach you some things that I think are pretty important and that will be of value to you in life. But what you do with this is up to you. And this is a really smart professor. It turned out to be one of my favorites. I had other courses with him as we walked through. But he said this. He said, I'm not going to pay attention to whether you come to class or not. He said, now, if you come, don't walk in late. I don't want you to disrupt those who want to learn. But I'm not going to take attendance at all. Now, some did, some didn't in college. But I'm not going to pay any attention to whether you're in the classroom. And the thing is, classes are different. You got them on Tuesdays or Thursdays or Mondays, Wednesdays or Friday. And this was a Tuesday, Thursdays, a long class. And so this professor said, if you don't come, that's your business, okay? He said, not only that, but I will tell you, you do not have to worry about any little quizzes or, or tests along the way. I'm not going to give you a pop test. You won't ever walk into class and, and worry that I'm going to ask you to perform. He said, in fact, let me tell you the way I conduct this class. There is only one test, and it is the final exam. The final exam will be the hardest thing that you've ever taken. I just will warn you right now, you will spend twice as much time on it as you do on any other exam you take this semester. But at the end of the day, I will know by your final exam whether you have absorbed the material of this class or not, whether you've done the reading, the research, whether you have been in my lectures, I will know whether you have. Anybody else ever have a course like that? And I thought, what a deal. This is awesome. This is the, who didn't, nobody told me it was this good. I'm like, this is, because I knew that what I could do, and I, I, I knew it. I knew that I could coast through half the semester, pick up a class here or there, you know, if, 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 if circumstances didn't allow, if I missed one, I, I thought it could no big deal. I can ask a friend for notes or something like that, which I never did, but, but I thought I could do that. I had this prospectus, you know, the syllabus. It told me everything I needed to learn and know, and I had that there anytime I wanted it. And so I figured I'll coast through half the semester because I got other things I want to do. I just got here. I want to meet a lot of people, want to do a lot of things, you know, want to rush a fraternity, want to do some stuff. And so I'm, I'm going to do that stuff. And then at the halfway point, I will really buckle down. At that point, I will start reading like, 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 like I've never read before. I'll start studying like crazy, and, I, and I'll absorb this material. I'll do well in the exam, and, and I'll, I'll ace this thing. That's what I thought. 
So that's what I did. And uh, midway through the semester, that point came. I kind of knew when it came and when it go. There's a little break in the middle of the semester to tell you you're halfway through. So I knew we were there. And at that point, I said, now it's time for me to buckle down. But then, you know, I could wait another day or another two days or another. Th- that, what difference is a day? What difference is two days? What difference is three? What difference is a week, really, when it comes to a, a whole semester? And so it got a little later and it got a little later, got a little later. And then suddenly we're a couple of weeks before this big exam. Smile at me if you've ever done this before. Okay, and I, I think, okay, now, now I got no choice. Now I've got to, to figure out how to master this material, which I had not. I mean, I'd gotten some of it. It's not that I'd done nothing. It's just that I hadn't done enough. And I knew that. And so two things happened at that point that would radically change my life, okay? Number one, I learned how to study. For the first time ever in that few weeks, I learned how to study. It was too late, but I learned what it meant to really focus and to really absorb material. And number two, I discovered coffee. Amen? (laughs) How many of you discovered coffee in college? And you still haven't quit the habit, right? That's how it, how it is. I discovered coffee. And so everything was going along great. I discovered there was this place called the library. There were these places in the library called study carols. And you could reserve these and get these and you could lock yourself in. I got this little portable coffee pot and I made my own coffee in the library. It was rad. It was awful. It was, it was incredible. It was really bad coffee, but I didn't know it at the time. And I locked myself in there, and I started studying. <clears throat> Everything was rocking along. First few days, man, I probably got two hours sleep a night. I was young. It didn't matter. And I'd lost sleep for other reasons that semester anyway. And so I figured I can manage this. And then I started feeling a little tickle in my throat. I started feeling bad. Didn't feel great, but it's okay. I pressed on through. I kept pressing through, pressing through, pressing through. And by a couple of days before, I thought, this is going to work. I'm going to master this stuff. I'm going to know this stuff. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to lock down. I'm going to get this thing done. And I woke up about the day before the exam, and especially the morning of the exam, and felt like I had been hit by a Mack truck. Two weeks with no sleep, coffee does eventually wind you out. And I had gotten to the point I couldn't remember anything I'd tried to learn, anything I'd read. I knew I was in trouble. But I counted on one thing. I remembered how to pray. And I said, Lord, help me make it through this test. I got to the exam I got there right on time. I pulled out what we used to call a blue book. Those of you my age will remember blue books. I wrote three blue books in that particular exam. And I started hammering down and writing, but I couldn't remember a thing that I had learned. The important points, the important details, the general things I could talk about, knew how to do that. I couldn't remember the details. And when I walked out of there, I knew I had flunked that exam. Now, here's the good news. I did not flunk the exam. I made a C in that course. And I felt lucky by the grace of God to get out as my last C in college. Last one I ever made, first and last in college. But it was not how I wanted to perform and not what I wanted to be. And I realized the problem and I never quite did that again. Never again. From my second semester on, I started at the beginning. I started day by day doing the little things that make you a good learner. Because it's lots of little cumulative moments of learning that create a real opportunity to truly know. Being faithful in little things leads to big things. It's, 
It's something that I learned the hard way, not just in academics either. This wasn't the only place where I compromised in little ways when I got away from the places, the parents, and the people who had shaped me. And you know, it is possible to be like a frog in the kettle where the water is heating up around you, but you don't recognize it until you're cooked. And that's what happens to many people in our culture. And I'm going to share with you a story that is surprisingly relevant to our day. Students, this is a great culture. Uh, This is a great story for our culture. Now, you know this story. This is probably one of the most familiar pictures ever in Christian history. This is what? This is who? This is Daniel in the lion's den. You don't have to go to church to know this story. Everyone knows this is the most famous picture ever of Daniel in the lion's den. I've seen it in a museum. It's magnificent. It's incredible. And I know immediately what he's going through. And that is found in chapter six of Daniel. And next week we'll get to that story. I'm going to jump right over another story that's very famous in the book of Daniel. And it's found just a couple of chapters before. And it is the story. It's a little harder to figure out, but it's the story of three people. What are their names? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I heard some of you say the VeggieTale version. That's funny. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they are in the fiery furnace with the fourth man. You, got, you know the story, right? I've preached this. I've preached this in here before. If you don't know, it's your fault. It means you weren't faithful in the little things, right? Because that's what it is. And these belong to a set of narratives in the Old Testament. And these narratives in the Old Testament... They are called Jewish hero narratives or Jewish hero stories. And this particular set is classified as what we call Hebrew wisdom literature. Now, I, I know that many of you have studied the book of Daniel for its apocalyptic visions. And if I ask you what is Daniel, you'll say a prophecy. And there is prophecy in Daniel, but Daniel's not a prophecy. In fact, the Daniel prophecies are radically abused radically abused and misunderstood, not seen in the context of their present day of their history of whatever. But that's another story. People love those prophecies. And I preached those prophecies during COVID, if you watched, because I was at the time just on the screen. So maybe you remember that. Maybe you do. Probably you, you don't. Some people say, well, Daniel's a book of history. If you want the history of this portion this time in Israel's history, you need to go to Kings, Second Kings in particular. <clears throat> That's where you will find the books of history. Daniel's a set of narratives that are set within history. They're stories. And what they are is they're hero stories or hero narratives. How many of you love heroes? You like heroes? I'll be very honest with you. I have gotten sick and tired of superheroes. I feel like they're being forced to, re- I, like they're everywhere. I've had enough. I mean, I've seen more bad superhero movies in the last few years than I think I've ever seen. I, I, I don't even like them anymore. I used to. I just don't anymore. But when I was a kid, I loved them. I grew up in Radford, uh, in southwest Virginia, near Virginia Tech and Radford University. In fact, I grew up about a mile from Radford University in a college town. And there was a man in my church named Charlie Path. And Charlie Path ran the Allegheny newsstand, no longer there. It was on Main Street in Radford, right beside the theater the only theater we had in town, one screen, no waiting, because there was only one thing to see, whatever it was. And every once in a while, Charlie Path, great big old guy, jovial guy, would say to my daddy, who was his pastor, he would say to him, bring the boys, my brother Lee and me, down to the stand this week. 
I got a little something for them. Now listen, friends, it didn't get any better than this. Because here's what was going to happen. My brother Lee and I were going to go into Allegheny Newsstand, and he was going to give us a little tiny bag of candy, which big deal back then because my mom didn't have candy in our house, that kind of thing. And then he was going to say, all right, boys, go over to the stand. And there was a number he would give out. He'd say, this week you pick out six comic books. And remember the rule, one of them has to be a Christian comic. Do you guys remember those? Like crossing the switchblade, you don't remember? Hiding place, stuff like that. One of them has to be that. That one didn't matter to me at the time. I have to tell you the truth. But the five could be anything else. They could be, they could be Spider-Man. They could be Batman. They could be Superman. They could be whatever it was, Green Lantern. Green Lantern was awesome back then. It could be Iron Man. It could be whatever. And my brother and I would go and we would coordinate with each other. And then we could get 10 of different, different varieties. Some of them would be valuable if I'd kept them today. And we'd go home and read them, read them and swap them around. I love those superhero stories. I'm blessed in my life that I had some real life heroes. Did you? I mean, I preached some funerals recently of people's dads who were their heroes. That's awesome. It's awesome. But I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm sick of superheroes. I want to see some superheroes. I, 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 I want to see some heroes emerge in this culture, and not the kind of people we're holding up as heroes or sports figures or business people or politicians, people who, generally speaking, have gotten very wealthy doing whatever they do. And generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, many of them have been radically compromised. And I'm not talking about on any particular extreme. I mean across the board. And I am begging for heroes of Jesus Christ to emerge in our culture today, whose standard is the service of others, first and foremost. What is best for others, not as what is best for me. What is best for the nation? What is best for the world? What is best? I'm, I'm dying to see more heroes than I'm seeing in our day and time. I just think personally we have less real heroes today than we've ever had. I really think that's true. And we're begging for heroes. Now, how do students get into this? Because you're going to have to be them. My generation failed. If you're of my generation, I don't mean to insult you. I mean to insult me. But what happened is we became conspicuous consumers very early in our lives, and consumption ate us up. And what became important to us was not necessarily what was important to God. And truthfully, in my opinion, my generation, and yes, even the one before me, we have failed to produce the kind of champions for Jesus Christ that we really should have. We have failed to be the kind of heroes that other people could look up to. And I'll tell you, Honestly, I, I just beg, Lord, make me the kind of hero of the faith that you've called me to be when so much around me competes for my attention and interest. And so we look at a hero story today because we need heroes. And students, I'm counting on you to be heroes that I can count on, that we can count on. Now, this particular story, we can tell you exactly when it happens, when it's set. This is kind of cool because a lot of times in the Bible you say it's about this time. 
It's within the two years of 589 and 587 B.C., which many of you who are Bible scholars will recognize as the very beginning of what we call the Babylonian exile. But the exile does not happen until the later date, 587. In 589, a famous king sacked Jerusalem, came into Israel, but his intention was not to destroy the nation or the city or the people. His intention was to assimilate them into his culture and to get them to willingly choose what he thought was a superior way of life, a superior culture. And so this happens in the period of assimilation. This story we're going to study today happens in that period of assimilation before it fails, before the people will not fully assimilate and before this famous king goes in and decides he's got to simply tear down the country in order to rebuild it, the country being Israel. So, 589 to 587 B.C. And the famous king, the very famous king, is King Nebuchadnezzar II, and his empire is the great Neo-Babylonian empire. If you study history, you know this is very important because we're not talking about ancient Babylon or the most ancient Babylon. We're talking about that which grew up out of the northern mountains of Assyria. Nebuchadnezzar inherited a small kingdom from his father. He was a great leader, a great military conqueror, a brilliant man, an absolutely brilliant man. He knew everything there was to know about great culture, about beauty, about art. He was absolutely a remarkable feature, person in history. And he was able slowly but surely to conquer the nation states around him in expanding circles until he had what was the greatest empire of his day and one of the greatest empires in human history, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Many people would argue, and I think rightly, that the United States of America is the Babylon of, of today. I know some people would like to think of us as the Israel of today. I think probably we're the Babylon of the day. We live in a pretty pagan culture, and we always have to some extent. So it's interesting to look at this. We dominate the world's culture the way Babylon did. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a remarkable guy. He knew that if you force someone to do something, they might rebel against you. And he understood what sociologists now call the process of full assimilation versus forced assimilation. And full assimilation is when I give you a choice. I simply put things before you that you really want, and I give you the opportunity to take on the characteristics of a different culture. And slowly but surely, one little tidbit at a time, you adopt these things of your own until you become one of us, until you become like me. And there's nothing wrong with good assimilation. Nothing wrong. But this assimilation was of a pagan culture taking in God's people. And so the danger was that God's people lose their identity in this, this remarkable pagan culture. And when I say remarkable, it was. Babylon had the most developed language and literature of its day. Babylon had the greatest science and mathematics of its day. A lot of the mathematic theory we look at today comes out of the theory of Babylon. It had the greatest philosophers of the day, and it had the most beautiful buildings and the most beautiful architecture anywhere in the world. How many of you have ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens in Babylon? Have any of you ever seen them? I never have. I, I really want to see 
uh, what's left of the Hanging Garden someday. Regarded, widely regarded as one of the most beautiful architectural feats of all time, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar. He did that. He, he brought all the artists together, all the musicians together. He created great culture, the greatest culture of his day. And Daniel was invited to be a part of that culture. He was invited to buy into it, to possess it, to own it. He was invited to be a part of it, but it required, ultimately, it would require him to do one thing, and that is walk away from his faith. And the question we're asking is, what would happen to Daniel when he is away from his people, his parents, and his places? When he is a stranger in a strange land, how many Daniels were there? A bunch. But there was only one like him, only one small cluster who were true heroes of the faith. And that's the essence of this hero story. I love it when some of you tell me that I looked at your sermon notes and at first I wondered where you're going with this. And John State came to me before the service. He said, I looked at the chapter of Scripture. He said, like, what is he going to do with this? Why didn't you just jump into the fiery furnace in the lion's den? Because you can't get to the fiery furnace in the lion's den unless you look at chapter 1. It is what happens in chapter 1 that shapes the whole story. The real heroics are what Daniel and his friends did with the little things. Being faithful in the little things. So when the big test came, the big final exam came, the big challenge came, they were ready for it. So let's take a look at this remarkable story. This is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which is, yes, the entire first chapter of Daniel. It must be read in detail. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the compromising king who tried to compromise but ultimately lost, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Did you hear that? The Lord delivered this nation into the hand of the great king because of its compromise and unfaithfulness. Along with some of the articles from the temple of the Lord. Now, these articles Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and he put, the treasure, put it in the treasure house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect. These sound like racehorses. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, Showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's service. We got some students like this, right? You're thinking as I say that, yeah, I'm one of those, one of those. Right, Carson's issue, right? Handsome, capable, fit, able. These are the men that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to bring in. Now, what did he want to do? His goal was to fully assimilate Israeli culture. So if I bring the the best and the brightest, and I bring them to the king's court and the king's palace, and I offer them the very finest things of the very wealthiest empire 
on the face of the earth. They will not be able to refuse these things. They will want to consume these things. They will want to have these things, possess these things. And over time, they will become one of us. Nebuchadnezzar, who was a great nation builder, probably thought, if I can acculturate, assimilate these young leaders into my court, I can then send them back to their people and I can fully accomplish taking Israel on as just an underling, a piece of of Babylon. So that's probably his ultimate goal. But his first goal is to get this big cluster of young leaders to buy in. How many are there? We're not told. But a lot. We know how many people came in the first wave to Babylon. So we have a pretty good idea that Nebuchadnezzar pulled a lot of young, bright leaders into his royal court to accomplish this. And only a few of them bucked the system. The rest of them said, man, who wouldn't want what the king is offering to me here? See, this was a great opportunity. This was a great opportunity. I have been brought from what has become a very poor nation, what has become a kind of a fallen, broken nation. I've been been invited to come from there to this greatest empire on earth, to the very center of power to prove myself. If ever there was a great career opportunity, this is it. This rivals getting on with some of the greatest companies of the world today. In that day and that time, this was a remarkable opportunity. Now, what we're told is that this chief was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, the greatest in the world. The king also assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's from the king's table. This is food and drink that even the average Babylonian did not have access to. This is like dining at the White House every day. This is an unbelievable opportunity. I mean, this is incredible. What they were being given was the most decadent food of its day and any time before. Babylon had some of the greatest cuisine that there was. It was green. It was lush. The things that grew there were amazing, known for its fine wines and fine cuisine. And that's what he offered to these young men. Now, I don't know how many young men I got here, but if I invite you to a table like that, would you please tell me what you do? Come on, be honest. I've watched you eat. (laughs) More than that, I envy you because, oh, I remember when I could eat like that and not gain an ounce, even if I wanted to. I couldn't. I will warn those of you going to college. So this is for those of you going to college. I I can't speak for the military, but maybe some of you can. But for those of you going off to college, I'm just going to warn you. I won't see you again probably till Christmas, maybe Thanksgiving, if I'm lucky. You know, do do keep in touch with me. Call me once in a while. Dr. J, how you doing? You know, do that. What? Drop me. I'll drop you a note. Drop me a note. Let me know how you're doing. But, But I'll see you at Christmas. And if you're like the typical college freshman, you will come home with more than just a little more education. You will come home with what we call the freshman. (laughs) Come on, adults. You know. You're going to come home with the freshman 10. Oh, it's 15 now. Can I tell you how this happens? 
So you get to school and your mama ain't there no more. And your mama fed you well. You know, she took care of you. At least my mom did. My mom made me eat whatever was on the table. Now, I'm just going to tell you how it was in my house. You either ate what was offered to you or you starved. Those were your two choices. If spinach were served, you ate spinach. If collard greens were served, you ate, which by the way, to this day, I love collard greens. They're delicious. If chicken was served, you ate chicken. If beef was served, you ate beef. If pork was served, you ate pork. If spaghetti was served, you ate spaghetti. You ate what was ever on the table. As I got to be a teenager, my mom did give a little levity there. Okay, So she said, if you don't want to eat on the table, there's peanut butter in the cabinet. Those are your two choices. But when I was little, I ate what was ever there. Here's what was not in my house. There was no such thing as Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whatever, even Big K Cola. None of that was there. That was Kmart Cola. That's another day. There were no ruffles, there were no Cheetos, no, none of that. We'd go on vacation and we'd buy those things. We thought, that, we thought they only existed in the, at the beach in North Carolina. I, we thought that was the only place that snack foods existed. Not really. But we just didn't eat that stuff. We were carefully cared for and somebody was really watching over our diets. And then I got to college, man. And college then wasn't like it is now. Now there is, a, there is a, a, an arms race underway for which college can serve the best food, have the fanciest dormitories. This is why college costs too much. Every one of them looks like a country club. But even in my day, it wasn't bad at least not at the University of Richmond. And when you went to the dining hall or one of the other places on campus to eat, you could have whatever you wanted. Now, let me, this is still this way because I took my kids to college and I've been to colleges recently and I've seen this. So there will be a place that's called like the burger counter or something. And if you want to eat burgers and fries at every single meal, you can not only that, but you can have as much as you want. If you want 10 burgers and 10 orders of fries, you can have that. Joe, you're looking so excited. <laughs> Joe just absolutely reached over, hugged his grandmother, started grinning. <laughs> you can have anything you want. Now, I will tell you that the football players, they eat even better than you do. Every steaks every meal. That's the king's table. But you're going to be at a princess table. It's going to be pretty good. Seeing you, the dining hall, it's really good. Mongolian barbecue is there every meal, Joe. So you, you go in there, you can have whatever you want. And you think, what a life! This is awesome! My mom's not here! Nobody cares! I can have whatever I want! And you will consume and here's what you will learn for the very first time in your life. What you consume gets in you and stays in you. What you consume defines who you are. Because what you consume defines what you value. This is what American culture needs to understand more than ever before. I don't know how we forgot it. I don't know what happened to us. But we have become such conspicuous consumers that we think we don't need to be faithful in what we take in. If I can afford it, I can have it. That's the rule. If I can buy it, I can have it. Or even if I can't, I can charge it. We've lost the art of self-control. We've completely lost any understanding of what moderation means. We've lost any understanding of anything that lies beneath luxury, especially in a place like we live now. And luxury is addictive. Are you with me, adults? It's addictive. It's addictive. You get used to it. 
And it becomes normative even though you live in the top 1% of the world's population, even today. Probably the, the two or three tenths in the history of the world's population in terms of wealth. It's addictive. What will Daniel do? Well, what most of the guys did is they ate and they drank because they could. And because this was the most luxuriant thing they'd ever seen. They'd never seen anything like Babylon. It didn't matter. Being royalty in Israel was nothing compared to being at the king's table in Babylon. They'd never seen anything like this. What a grand opportunity. But one young man and the friends he collected around him, they bucked the trend. Now, these young men were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. It's a great career opportunity. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, the southern part of Israel, southern part of the kingdom. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Would they stick? To Daniel, he gave a name that no one can hardly even pronounce, Belteshazzar, but it was a royal name. You need to know this. It was a royal name in Babylonian culture. He favored Daniel with this name. To Hananiah, he gave the name. You know this one, right? Shad. That's Daddy Tales. Shadrach. And to Mishael, he gave Meshach. And to Azariah, he gave Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, Daniel somehow had wisdom far beyond his years, and it was this wisdom that would make him a hero of the faith. He had wisdom to know a couple of things. The first thing he knew is that luxury was addictive and would make him fat. He understood that he would get soft if he ate every meal in luxury at the king's table. He knew this instinctively, or he had been taught it and remembered it from the people, the parents, and the places that had nurtured him. And he carried that knowledge with him to Babylon, and he remembered it. Somebody taught him well, and he remembered what he'd been taught. He knew who he was, and he knew whose he was. Because what he also knew is that if he was not faithful in the little things, he would not get the great opportunities that he believed God would give to him. He knew at a very early age what I didn't know at his age, and many of you didn't either, which is that you had to be faithful in every little thing because they mount up and become cumulative, and if you don't pass little tests, you always fail big ones. He somehow knew this was true. And see, in his tradition, in his faith, eating kosher mattered. Eating according to the law of God mattered. And Daniel knew, not only are these foods that God has asked me to eat pleasing to him, but they're healthier for me. And I'm not going to do something that dishonors God and that makes me sick. So I am going to choose not to defile myself, but I've got to have permission to do it. He trusted that God would make a way. And God did make a way. Because what we're told is that God had caused the official over him to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the king. 
remember, who is a cruel king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. This is important to understand because there is a practical reason why the official allows Daniel and his three friends not to eat the food the king has assigned. And that is that the king has taught him the art of full assimilation. If I force them to do this, they may rebel against me early in the process. But all I have to do is let them try this because what they're going to discover is that those who eat the king's food, of course, are going to be healthier. It's the king's food after all. How could luxury not be good for you? So this official thinks, I'll let them eat what they want to eat, maybe, and and they'll be unhealthier, and then this will be over and resolved, and I can fully assimilate them. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? Now, Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are keeping their Hebrew names, please test your servants for 10 days. Put us to the test. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, I've heard it said that this is like the kind of diet that's prescribed in kosher. It's not. What you need to know is that the Daniel diet is the food that was kosher that was available in Babylon. You couldn't get kosher meat in Babylon. You couldn't get kosher anything in Babylon, but vegetables and water were always kosher. So Daniel was saying, those things that are available from what is given me, I'll eat those, vegetables and water, And after a while, these fattened up other teenagers who are picking up the freshman tin in Babylon will test them and see what happens. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And then you treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Now, you see how Daniel is trusting God? God gave him away. He put not one but two people in his path. He gave him wisdom to navigate the pagan culture. And then Daniel trusted that if he honored God, God would make him healthy over those 10 days so that he could pass the test. So treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this. And he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate any of the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink, and he gave, now understand this, he gave all of them vegetables and water instead. What has Daniel done? With his faithful choice, being faithful in the little things, he has covered all of his comrades and peers. He's covered all of those young people that were brought from Judah and from Israel into the king's court. His little bit of influence has protected the entire generation of them from being spoiled by the king's luxury, which Daniel knew was a way the king was trying to assimilate him into the pagan culture. 
So Daniel's faithfulness in one little thing from the very beginning has tremendous impact. Young people, students, don't wait to be heroes until you're my age. Be heroes right now. We need young heroes, just like we need older heroes. In fact, we need you worse. Start being heroes now because you will not only influence a few friends, and that's important, but you'll influence others too. They will see the way you live for Christ as a champion, and they will see that you are healthy and that you are wise and that God honors you in what you do. So all of these kids wind up, young people wind up being covered because of this. Now to these four young men, Daniel and the other three, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we should know by their Hebrew names because they kept them. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. Now listen carefully. This is very important. Of all kinds of literature and learning. All kinds of literature and learning. I love this verse. Notice, please, what it does not say. These four young Hebrew men read only the Torah, read only the Bible. These young men did not get to know the science and math and literature of the culture. No. These young men were wise enough to be able to learn the ways of the world without becoming like the world. They could go off to school and they could learn everything about the civilization around them. And with great understanding and wisdom, knowing all that they knew, they could sustain the one thing that was most important, and that was their faithfulness to God and His law in the middle of it. And that is a model for those of us who live in a culture like this today. We live, I I guess you know this, right? Did you know that you live in the best educated region in the history of the world? Do you know that? Do you know that? There are more PhDs and master's degrees represented in D.C. Metro in 2023 than there have been at any other place at any other time in the history of the world. You'd think we'd be smarter, wouldn't you? (laughs) We're so smart and so stupid at the same time. Because what happens to us is we start to value that knowledge for the sake of that knowledge. We start to value success for the sake of success. We start to value influence for the sake of influence. A good friend of mine who used to be a member of this church has just written a book about the ironic truth that almost all people elected to office get wealthy. It's a great book. It's really interesting. We've started to regard success for its own value as though it had any, instead of for the opportunity it gives us to be champions for Jesus Christ. Instead of the opportunity it gets us to influence the culture with Scripture, with the power of the one true living God. Do we still believe that God's trying to change the world? And if God is trying to change, do you believe this? And if He is, how does He lead it? He, he, he does it by raising up heroes people who know who they are and whose they are, no matter where they go in life. And trust me, God's going to take some of you very, very far in life. Some of you are going to be very, very successful. Some of you are very smart, incredibly capable. 
And if you get there and you're our hero when you get there, your character is flawless, your commitment to Christ remains, and you're faithful in the little things, you'll change the world. My generation didn't. Are you going to take on the challenge? Well, that's what Daniel and his friends did. Can you pass the test? James wound up asking the same question of the early Christians. James, the brother of Jesus, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face tests of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, then ask God, and He'll give it generously to you without finding fault. That wisdom will be given to you. That's the wisdom that was given to Daniel because he thought to ask for it and because he knew how to use it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, Daniel, uh, I'm sorry, Paul is grieving the fact that there are not more heroes in his own day. He's talking to the church in Corinth, one of the most powerful cities on earth at the time he's writing to them, and he's saying, What happened? He's saying, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And he says, God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you were tempted, he will also provide you a way out so that you can endure it. Do you know how to pray for a way out? When faith was temptation in the little things, do you see how Daniel was given a way out? God gave him an official who favored him and then a guard underneath that official who would give him the opportunity to be tested. And Daniel knew that if he was tested, his faith would prove true. And he knew that once he passed that little test, he knew that God would place him in a position of greater authority. And that's exactly what God did. Daniel passed the test. Daniel chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. This is wrapping up here. The astrologers answered the king. Nebuchadnezzar had had this dream. It was a vexing dream, and Nebuchadnezzar knew it was a really important dream. He couldn't figure it out. So he calls in all the magi. This is where the magi come from. The astrologers and the magicians. And they answer the king. There's no one on earth who can do what the king's asking us to do. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magi, any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks, it's it's impossible. The literal translation here is impossible. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And our gods don't live among humans. But whose God does? I just taught this last week. You better get it right. Our God lives among humans. Our God makes His dwelling place here. Our God is with us. Our God walks with us. Our God imbues us with power and wisdom and might. Our God speaks to us. Our God is with us. But their gods, they were out there somewhere because there's no such thing as their gods. They're just figments of their imagination. They don't live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he offered the execution of all the wise men, magi, in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the magi to death, the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and for his friends to put 
them to death. So listen to what's happened now in a short period of time. We go from not eating this food, that's just being faithful in a little thing, to Daniel and his friends, God's people, God's heroes, being counted among the king's wise men. That's amazing. They've been put in a place of influence. Now the question is, can they do better than the Magi? When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He was calm, cool, and collected. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel, who he was about to kill. At this, Daniel went into the king, and he asked for a little time, an audience, so that he might interpret the dream for him. And then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, during the night, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And why could God reveal a real vision to Daniel because Daniel was close to God. See, he'd been faithful in the little things and so he'd stayed close to God. He didn't forget whose he was. He didn't forget who he was. He knew his real ID. It didn't matter where he was. It didn't matter what his field of research or study was. None of those things mattered. It didn't matter how successful he was or unsuccessful. None of that mattered. It didn't matter who he was surrounded by. It didn't matter where he lived or whether his parents or people were around him. All he needed was one little handful of friends. What mattered was that he was close to God. And because he was close to God, God placed him in a position of influence, and then God gave him visions. Heroes get visions from God. That's a pretty simple story, right? But can you pass the test? Many in the early church could not Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Paul said, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before now, and I tell you now even with tears, many now live as enemies of the cross of Christ. They didn't mean to be. They became that way. Their destiny is destruction because their God became their appetite. Their God became their belly and their glory is in their shame. And their mind is set on earthly things, luxuries. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Daniel teaches us, be faithful in the little things because faithfulness in little things means success in big things. Daniel teaches us, never be afraid of a test of your faith. You'll pass it if God is on your side, and God will be. Daniel teaches us God will always put people into your path, sometimes even pagans, people who don't even believe, who will give you a way 
to be faithful to your God. Daniel teaches us you don't need everybody. Just collect a few good friends around you who agree with you on what character looks like, what it looks like to be a man or a woman of God. That's what you really need. Find those people. Find them quick when you get away from home. And Daniel teaches us that God is looking for heroes. God is looking for heroes, and students in this congregation, I believe you will be those heroes. I believe in you. You will be those heroes. But I I don't really believe in you. I believe in your God who is calling you to be a hero. Can you pass the test? Think about it. And next week we'll talk a little more about this. Father, Bless us with your Holy Spirit and give us visions that can come only from you and put us in places of impact and influence where those visions can affect many, many others for your glory. And Lord, make our faith appealing in such a way that people will look at us and say, look how that person holds to their character. They are faithful with little things. No matter what it is, how small they're faithful They must be capable of big things. Lord, raise up a generation of heroes and may that generation begin with these students in our congregation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Columbia heroes, go change the world for Christ. Together we are all new, all in, and all out. You go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.